we're starting a new series tonight. And the new series we're starting comes out of our last one where we just finished talking about what non-Christians think of Christianity. We're going to be talking about other religions. And as you heard Ben earlier kind of highlight and set this thing up, one of the reasons is we found that we really can't even intelligently talk to other people sometimes because we don't even know what they believe. The challenge, of course, is for us to be able to synthesize somebody's beliefs into a short talk. So right from the start, we have a difficult task we're not going to be able to do to try to take somebody's entire religion and compress it down. But we want to at least be a little bit conversant in some of the ideas. And I'm going to try to do that tonight. Okay? Just to kind of show you where we're going, tonight we're going to do a little introduction and do something on Scientology. Next week, Judaism, maybe a little bit on Kabbalah. Then Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Christian Science. And you guys had a bunch of other ones you asked about. If we can find a way to do them that we don't lengthen this all summer long, I'm going to do that. I'm also going to try to bring in some other people who have their own representations of their faith. Maybe we can do that a little bit and maybe model some dialogues with people. I'd like to. I don't know if we can do this yet, but I'd like to spend maybe a week studying Mormonism and the following week bring in a Mormon missionary. Just talk to them. Just ask questions, all right? So that we can do what the series is intended to do, which is to show us how to have dialogue with people of other faiths, not just focus on how we're right. And that's what I want to start off with tonight. Let's look at why we're doing this series in general. We always start off with the justification of why we're going to spend all these weeks. Here's some things to think about. First, I think we're woefully ignorant of the practices and the beliefs of others. A lot of us kind of heard some things, and again, I don't know how much justice we could do in one night for a religion that has covered you know, thousands of years, in some cases at least 50 or 100 years, but we're going to try to at least become conversant. Number two, I don't think we can enter into meaningful dialogue with other people unless we kind of know a little bit about what they believe. I don't think we could actually contrast how Christianity might offer a different worldview if we don't know what we're contrasting it against. That's kind of the thought process there. I think studying other religions also refreshes our own belief system a little bit too. And it leads us to this fourth point. Sometimes we can learn a lot of the way how other people see Christianity by the way that we get together and study about some of the other religions. It might give us insights as to how people might view Christianity if we were to present it the way we're going to present some of these other religions. Okay? So that's kind of what we're going to do. Here's what we're not going to do. <laughs> we're not here to make fun of other religions. Some things, of course, might seem strange to you, and that's okay. We can comment fairly. I'm not trying to stifle the discussion, but I want to be clear where we're coming from. We're not here to make fun of other people. I don't think that's what Jesus would do. I don't think that's what we should do. And if we just finished a series about all the ways that Christians hurt the cause of Christianity by their attitudes, I think making fun of people for that sole purpose, we'd be, we'd be off track. Second thing, I think we wanted to understand our own faith without putting on an air of superiority, which I really just say is pride. Sometimes when you hear discussions about other faiths, it's really only meant to make us feel better. Like, look at how stupid that is. Don't you feel better about your own faith? I think we should just suspend that prideful attitude. Or maybe that comes from fear and just spend time just listening and see if we at least appreciate what somebody else thinks so that we can talk to them about it. Of course, strengthening our own views along the way. Is that fair? That's kind of the spirit I want to do it in. Okay? Now, I realize that as soon as I say that, we're diving into Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> Which is going to be... Maybe not the best example of how to start that off, but I thought it was a little bit more compact than trying to do like all of Buddhism in one night tonight. So like we could at least start with something like Scientology. Let's talk a little bit about Scientology. And here's what you can do. You can interrupt at any point. You know that. 
Um, I know that some of you don't have all this information, so I'm going to present some of the information. I'm actually going off notes a little bit more tonight than I usually do just because I don't want to misrepresent uh, the faith of Scientology. And I also want to tell you that, you know, we do background research and I picked up some Christian sources on Scientology and I also picked up some summaries from Scientology and essays written by religious scholars who are not Christian writing about Scientology. So it could be fair. We could look at it from different angles. All right. So how many people know anything about Scientology? Anybody? Know something? You know, a little bit? You want to throw out some of the things you guys know? What do you, what do you know about Scientology? Founded by L. Ron Hubbard. Founded by L. Ron Hubbard, okay. Uh, I know that they hook themselves up to an electric meter and they have a certain level of, uh, like if they get to a certain level, then that means that they're like holier or they're righteous, but they never get to like being perfect. Okay, well let's look a little bit about what they believe so we can kind of clarify. You can stop and ask for clarification. I'll try to move through pretty quickly. Let's first look at what they consider as their scripture, their scriptural background. Somebody mentioned L. Ron Hubbard already. So we'll talk about L. Ron Hubbard, but he's the founder of the religion. He wrote a book called Dianetics. Now, L. Ron Hubbard began his career as a pretty popular science fiction writer in the 30s and 40s. Then in 1950, I believe he published Dianetics, which became an overnight sensation. That's considered the beginning of their scripture, what he wrote in Dianetics and subsequent writings. He kept writing until he died, I believe, in 1986. So the first thing you got to recognize is this is a fairly new religion. It was born in 1950. And its founder died in at least some of our recent memories. So he was around, and it was a fairly short span for it to have grown. That's their scriptural basis. He was a pretty prolific writer. He was a prolific science fiction writer, but he actually wrote more about Scientology than even his earlier science fiction books. So he dedicated most of his time to writing. Here's what they get some of their beliefs from. L. Ron Hubbard was heavily influenced by his own words by the Hindu Veda and especially the Buddhistic interpretation. So he kind of considered himself a second Buddha. In fact, he references that Buddha thought that 2,500 years later there would be a completion of some of Buddha's own writings and thoughts and he believed that he was that completion. All right, So he kind of sees himself as a second Buddha. Buddha. Now, they don't have to worry so much about the beliefs because you'll see that Scientology is very pluralistic. They allow you to believe a lot of different things, at least in terms of your belief system, but your practice has to adhere very closely to the church's practice. Right? So, for example, if you talk to people about God, Scientologists will tell you there may be a supreme being, there may be one God, kind of like the Brahmin God in a Hindu sense, or there could be many gods. It doesn't matter, and you can believe whichever one you want. Because that's not ultimately what it's all about. It doesn't really matter which one you believe. And they kind of will tend to defer to you. How were you raised? Whatever you think God might be, that's good. So you can see it's kind of born in that sense of relativism we have, and that pluralism that's in a modern, kind of like just at that edge of modernism and postmodernism. This is one of those religions. So. That's kind of their scriptural background, the writings of L. Ron Hubbard. Okay? What do they think about man? Just to give you an idea of what they believe. Because most religions have a view of mankind, of some way. All right? Here's some quotes. Man is basically good. All right? So you can see that right away. Man is good. Man is not the same thing as his body. In fact, the quote from Scientology is, I am not this body. So somehow you're something beyond the body or actually independent of the body. Okay? 
man is seen as part God, and that man can attain kind of a godlike status through following the tenets of Scientology. So you can kind of achieve this higher and higher understanding and, and eventually get high enough through your spirituality to attain a godlike status. They're always looking for knowledge. In fact, their quote is, know thyself, the truth will set you free. Does that sound kind of familiar? The truth will set you free? But notice how it's placed. It's in knowing yourself. So you can see from the beginning, what does this kind of sound like? Like what kind of roots does this have? I mean, you already see it. It has a lot of Eastern thought in these roots. Okay? A lot of kind of flavors of Hinduism and Buddhism. So, so far that sounds kind of where it's come from. And by their own admission, that's kind of where he gets a lot of the thought, only they complete it. They believe that you're in this cycle of reincarnation, which they call rebirth. The ideal would be as if you could escape from that cycle in one lifetime, which is why the practices of Scientology are so important. Because if you discover the practice of Scientology, you've discovered the keys of how to get out of this cycle. And if you could accomplish it in one lifetime, you may be free finally from the cycle. All right, let's talk about how they believe man got here. So this is a pretty modern, you know, you know we've got a lot of mythologies of how mankind, humankind evolved. But remember, this was written in the 1950s. So here's some ideas on the evolution of man. Man began about 60 trillion years ago. The first stage of man was the photoconverter, which converted light into energy. And since it had nothing to do at night, it learned to sleep. Okay. The photon converter. Eventually, through evolution, the photon converter became the jellyfish. Okay. The jellyfish got tired of being batted around on the rocks, so eventually it developed a shell and became the clam. The clam eventually, according to Scientology and their view of evolution, became the jaw of the human mouth. Just that hinge action. And some other parts that were barnacles became the teeth, and eventually this clam was able to climb up onto land. It learned to run salt water into air through these tubes, which became our eyes. And that's kind of how eventually this chain of evolution resulted in humankind. Yes? Is that just a condensed version or is that like literally how they would explain it? That's a fairly condensed version, although what's interesting to note about it is those are the big steps they usually highlight, but they have a more detailed evolution. Okay. But what's, I think what's fair to note is that, you know, if somebody wrote that mythology of evolution like you know, 2,000 years ago, it would seem equally plausible with everything else. But for a, a, a kind of evolutionary scale that was written in the 1950s, it seems a little bit out of the ordinary. And that's where most people kind of look at Scientology and think, okay, this gets a little strange. Because that sounds like it doesn't even fit with a normal kind of understanding of what was going on in the 1950s when even Darwinian evolution was known and out there so that it sounds like you really were looking for a totally different source. Well, the reason I ask that is because, I mean, even on a, on a, looking at it from an evolutionary spectrum, that looks really weird. Yeah, it does seem strange, I mean, how that became. But let me point out one other thing. They don't care so much about how the life form evolved, because as you'll see right now as I get to it, remember, they're not the body. The body is just a convenient vessel. They're going to find another way. So that's just one way to do it. Yeah, I was wondering if this is seen more as a factual uh, creation of man, like the way science views evolution, or more of a kind of religious, well, you know, there were 
literally this is the physical being that existed and this is the physical being? Or is it more of a poetic, you know, it was likened to this and likened to that? One of the things about L. Ron Hubbard's writings is he makes it clear over and over that these are factual things. And he'll make statements that says this is how it was. I, I'm not quoting him right, but right. he'll make statements that are summary statements showing that this is this is truth, you know, not that like in our recent past or this is the memory we're left with, but really so it's an, when I say it's a mythology, I don't mean to say like it's just in the back of their mind something that they created as a mythology to exist. It's their creation account, their evolution account. Right? That's how they see it. And he saw that as a factual thing. Okay, you'll see as we get into a little bit more right now that he has pretty specific factual things. He has all other theology put down in certain books. They've recorded his lectures. I mean, one of the things that's, that's different about this religion is that the founder was alive during most of the time that we could videotape him and record him. So a lot of times in church services, they just play videos of him or they play recordings of him. Instead of even preaching, they just go, here, let's hear it directly from the source. So that's something that a modern religion affords. Let me move on to what they believe about the Thetan. This is kind of the essence of where Scientology comes in. Let me try to make this. The best way to understand the Thetan is it's very similar to our, what we would consider the spirit or the soul. All right? This is the part that's eternal. It's timeless. It reincarnates or is reborn continually in interplanetary life forms. So in all different types of life forms, the Thetan's present. It's intrinsically good. The Thetan by itself is omniscient. And we're not talking about God here. You've got to understand, the Thetan is like in every single life organism. All right? Is, is like the spirit. Yeah, it's kind of in, in a Hindu sense, it would be like all of them combined are kind of like the force. There was the Thetans, and they were this all-good, all-knowing beings. More than 80 trillion years old, and each of the Thetans, and this is one of the places where he points out specific facts, like it dwells in your skull. So he's like pinpointed like where it dwells. That's where it is. From 80 trillion years ago. The Thetans then created what's called the MEST. MEST is M-E-S-T. It's short for matter, energy, space, and time. So outside of matter, energy, space, and time, the Thetans existed. They created everything that's not a Thetan is MEST. It's matter, energy, space, and time. And that's where things started to go awry. Because they got so enamored by their own creation that they eventually came into their creation and they got trapped. They got trapped in matter, energy, space, and time, and they started to forget that they were Thetans. They started to forget that they were this omniscient and, and, and kind of eternal soul or spirit or whatever you want to call it. And so they got trapped into our bodies, into what we are now in this mess that they created. So that's where Scientology comes in. It seeks to reach out to all those trapped Thetans so that we could find a way to free ourselves and get back to that state that we were originally in of all-knowing, all-good, those kinds of places where we could be there again. Yeah. But, I mean, that makes sense if you're a Thetan caught in someone's body. I mean, you're an all-knowing being that kind of forgot it was all-knowing. So you could always get back that knowledge. Right. The problem with that, there's a little bit of a chicken and egg, is if you're trapped in the body, how would you free yourself to teach others how to free themselves so they could figure out that they're this thing? And that's one of the problems that Scientology's always had to explain was when we talk about becoming clear in a moment, 
L. Ron Hubbard never made the claim that he was actually one of those people that was clear until later when that contradiction started to come up. But let's leave it there because that's a good question and it would require us to actually read a lot of his scriptural support because it developed over time. And just maybe it's fair to throw this out here uh, because a lot of you have kind of touched on it and I was going to leave it till we talk about L. Ron Hubbard as a person because I think it's fair to look at the founder. But remember L. Ron Hubbard is a science fiction writer. And he's very popular at the time, and he's, of course, writing books that have all sorts of new inventions in science fiction. But he's quoted in Time Magazine as saying that why, and I'll read you his exact quote because I don't want to butcher it, writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. He's referring to science fiction writing. Writing for a penny a word is ridiculous, he said at a New Jersey science fiction convention. If a man really wanted to make a million dollars, he would start his own religion. So, of course, there was always this strange doubt from the beginning about how he got these ideas. Did he actually just write them? And there's always that link about how he discovered them because unlike some religions where they say somebody from on high came and dictated this to me and I wrote it down, that claim seems to be a little bit absent sometimes. Like, is there a set number of things or can they be created or destroyed? Do new ones get made? Or? I think they're already existing. And here's how that works. We know they created the mess. They got enamored by their own creation. They're trapped. That's the idea. All right, here's the next step. When the Thetan dies, of course, when the body dies, the Thetan is released, and they're now going to be free to jump into another body. But they can't do it on their own. They have to go to an implanter station. Okay? So the body dies, the Thetan goes to the implant station, and then is shot back into another body. And the reason we know that is because L. Ron Hubbard told us that there is an implant station on Mars. Okay? So maybe he wasn't thinking that we were going to have a Mars rover, rover, like even this week, flying around the surface of Mars. So scientists all this week have been asking, by the way, if, if now that they found what they think is ice on Mars, does that mean there's life on Mars? But if they would just travel to the other side of the planet, they might find the implant station. That would just solve everything, right? Yeah? I don't know if you're going to go into this, but if the Thetan is released, is it, is it just recalled to the implant station because I'm confused if they're released doesn't that give that the option to yeah. not like be re-implanted? No, it goes back to the implant station and it is and then it is shot into another body but the interesting part is it seems like there's no choice about going back to the implant station okay then there the thetan is implanted with what's this I want us to get this right I want to say this right is a, a it's called a strong forgetter implant to make you forget what you know and then you're shot into the next body, okay? And this is where Scientology's practice starts to come in. Can you see the problem? You have Thetans, they die, well, the body dies, they go to the implant station, for lack of a better word, their memory's kind of erased, they're shot into another body, all right? So all of us have a Thetan that has been going on and on and on through the cycle of birth and rebirth and has brought all these past lives in a kind of subconscious way it exists in us. So earlier you were talking about this meter that they use. Let's talk about that for a second and how it works. Like if, if I believe in Scientology, would I believe that I am the Thetan? The Thetan is inside of you. You are the Thetan, but you don't know it if you're not a Scientologist. You don't know. You just think you're a person. Because I'm in the cycle. Right. But if you discover Scientology, you at least realize that, you know what, even though you think you're just Ryan, what you really are is a Thetan that lives inside of you that has gone through this endless cycle of okay. birth and rebirth, okay. 
by being, you know, you die, goes up, gets shot back down, go through life not knowing it. And so the goal of Scientology is to tell you that. To tell you that, hey, there is salvation for you. And the salvation is, if you go through the steps of Scientology, we are going to free you from this endless cycle so that you can return to your Thetan state. Where you can return to that place of that intrinsically good, omniscient, very creative entity that once created everything that we see that's matter, energy, space, and time. Um, do they have like uh, rankings for, like I thought, so I read somewhere, there's like rankings of certain Scientologists. Absolutely, right. You progress on a scale of them, and I'll, I'll cover them <laughs> briefly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you said that they are wanting to free themselves to just be the Thetan, but they're also trying to become more godlike. So is the Thetan God? The Thetan is godlike. There is kind of God, but it's in a loose sense, just like the way the Hindus believe in a Brahman that's just like over and above, like a supreme being that's out there, although it's not identified. So Thetans are not God. They're God-like, and they could ascend to almost very similar to God-like. And what is God is almost like it doesn't matter to them. There may be a supreme being beyond all of that, but it's almost immaterial, or it's just not that important to them as opposed to freeing the Thetan to go back to the state they were in before. And that's why they have no problem with you believing in anything you want, any God you want. You can pick a God. They don't care about that part. They just want you to practice a certain way because they think whatever expression of God you think might be out there is good enough, doesn't really matter. It's not central to the way we think in our theology. It seems contradictory, but that's probably because they're comfortable with contradiction. This is kind of, a, in a way, one of the first postmodern religions, where that whole idea of an absolute truth or something that, asks, that makes sense without contradiction doesn't really matter if it contradicts. You know, it's like it's just whatever your expression is. They believe very strongly that your experience dictates your truth. So that's a very postmodern claim. Let me explain what you do when you become scientist, because this might help you a little bit. Right? So, Here's, here's their views about the mind. This might explain it. They believe the mind is, is set up into three kind of areas. First, you have the analytic mind. The analytic mind really is, that's almost a perfect place because it won't make a lot of mistakes. In fact, the analytic mind works in a way that we should operate. But there's this thing called the reactive mind. The reactive mind interrupts the analytic mind all the time and forces us to do some things that we don't want to do or to experience things we don't want to experience. So what is the reactive mind? And this is where all of Scientology kind of comes down to this point. You see these Thetans through this cycle of birth and rebirth have brought into our reactive minds what's called an engram. It's almost like, I don't know, the, the best example I could think of is like a repressed memory or a subconscious thought. It's somehow recorded. Now, they define specifically what an engram is. In some point, an engram actually is like a recording of something that's happened using all of your senses. It's like your sight and smell and touch, all that recorded the event and put it into the reactive mind. So what do you have to do in Scientology? If you go through auditing, which is that thing that Ryan was talking about, you can release the engram. And you probably have many, many engrams. Once you release those engrams one by one, you're going through a process where you go from pre-clear, that's where you're just first joining Scientology, like just discovering that, hey, newsflash, you have a thetan inside of you that's been going through all these endless cycles and you need to find a way to rise through the spirituality and free that thetan from this cycle. 
and you're going to clear one n-gram after another until you get to that level where all of those n-grams have been erased. And you go from a stage called pre-clear to clear. And if you continue, you get to a level called operating thetan. And they even have levels. So somebody referenced that they have all these different levels you go to. So once you decide you want to be in Scientology, they set you on a path. You almost have like literally a chart that shows where you are in the process. And you're going down two paths simultaneously. Training, which is their kind of theology, of how this works and what it means. And the more you train, the higher you get. You can actually become a minister in Scientology if you continue to go through training. They even have a seminary type structure where you can become one of their ministers. The other path you're going down simultaneously is processing. You're going through auditing. All right, let's define auditing. You grab two items that look like basically tin cans. They're connected to a wire and they're going into a, a machine that has like these little dials and meters on it. And you sit there and the person asks you questions and they're watching the meter. Okay, the idea is that every n-gram has electrostatic electricity, so you know, like it has like some sort of, yes, yeah, something, it has an electric property to it. And you're watching it very closely, the person who's observing. It's a little like counseling, except that person doesn't offer advice. They just ask questions about experiences or different things. They have a script they can actually follow. And as you recount things and talk things through, if that, whatever you're talking about, triggers an engram, it'll start to move or something. And then they go through a process of purging it. Dianetics basically is about how to figure out your, your n-grams and release them. And at first they didn't have a machine. They would just go through this process of auditing orally. And then he invented the machine. So then the machine started to be in widespread use. And like right from the beginning, the, you know, the American Journal of Medicine and like the American Psychology Association, everybody else came out strongly against this, as you can imagine, because they believed it was just, it wasn't really real. He said there was proven scientific and clinical studies that showed, but I mean, how would you show that the engram disappeared? I mean, it's just one of those things that's very hard to prove. Here's why this is a little confusing to you. Because when Dianetics came out, it was talking about going from pre-clear to clear. And there was all this path that you followed. The church makes its money through auditing. You pay for each auditing session. You pay for each training session. So it doesn't collect a tithe like our churches do. It doesn't just you know, try to find ways to get you to give to good causes. It just, it doesn't even take an offering during its services. You pay for auditing and training. So one of the critiques of Scientology is it seems like first it was supposed to go from pre-clear to clear. Then as they saw that some people were actually getting close to completing the charts they gave them, they go, well now you can go from clear to operating thetan. And operating thetan really puts you at a very high status. I mean, you're actually able to astral project and do all these different things. Then when that wasn't going so good, they started to add, well, actually your body may have been implanted with multiple thetans. We gotta go back and get to those as well. And then between pre-clear and clear, there were multiple levels of clear, then multiple levels of operating thetan, and they now have like up to operating level eight. And like if you wanna get to the higher levels of operating thetan auditing, you have to fly to this very special place. They only do it in like three places in the world. So somehow it seems that a good critique would be that the more that you go through it, they end up adding more layers that you gotta go through so that you can get this done in one lifetime, which of course means 
you got to pay a lot more money to get this through. Okay? And there's some benefits to being clear. Here's some of them. If you become clear, you will have improved eyesight. Your ears will no longer ring. It will increase your IQ, cure the common cold, speed your thinking computations 120 times faster than normal, and save your marriage. And these are all quotations from, from L. Ron Hubbard's writings. So they haven't actually had to prove that yet? Well, the first, clear, the first clear they tried to find, they first thought that they had found a clear in 1950, right when Dianetics came out. And one of, the, one of the hallmarks of being clear is because you can do these computations so fast, you have this incredible memory. So they announced that the first clear was a woman by the name of, a woman by the name of Sonia Bianca was the first clear. They brought in all the reporters and they started to quiz her. And according to the report, she was unable to recall simple details from her life, basic physics formula, or even things that took place during the meeting she was at. Most of the people just walked out of the room. So. Then they announced that maybe they were a little premature in citing her as clear. The first person to actually be announced clear after all the formulas and all the stuff went through was in 1966, a man by the name of John McMaster. And this is what bothered us, said some of the Scientology critics was, why isn't L. Ron Hubbard clear? Like how would he be able to know all these things if he hasn't proclaimed that he's clear? And of course later on that was corrected and he announced that he had actually been clear of some kind. So, yeah. Completely curious questions. Do you know how many total clears there have been and what the highest level of officially obtained has been? The highest level is operating Thetan 8. But I don't think there's any statistics that I know of of how many clears there are. The other thing that's hard to peg is how many Scientologists there are. The estimates range from 10 million, which is what the church publishes. Most religious scholar observers think that it probably was six at some point but practicing today, anywhere from 200,000 to a million. But Scientologists dispute that and say it's much higher. It's really hard to peg. But they do have a lot of churches in different places. And they have probably like 130 missions. They have all these. They have hierarchies. They go up. They're very hierarchical. So they have a lot of places. But yeah, in terms of how many clears there are, I don't think they've published that. Um, is that just kind of like viewed as any, like a parallel to enlightenment? Because I'm not seeing really a purpose. That's a good parallel, maybe that enlightenment to Nirvana. Now remember, the Thetan's released when you die, right, but if but you want to get him outside, right, if you want to escape from the cycle, you've got to get to what, again, it's very Hindu, Buddhist kind of root of getting to that level where you're beyond all the material. Because that, that, like, that in and of itself isn't, like, I'm not grasping that because it seems like what's the point of releasing from the cycle? So well, you go back to that beautiful state you're in where you're that, that's what good I and creative and you know who you are and all those things and you're not trapped in this material world yeah. and going through this cycle over and over you don't remember the greatness that you came from yeah so is it public knowledge like how the machine is built or is it like a kept secret or something or? I don't know that it's a secret what is in the machine and I'm going to encourage you on your own to study this so we don't have to go into it too much tonight but if you go to YouTube and if you just type in Scientology and E-meter, there is like dozens of videos where people are dis, uh, displaying how it works. Now, some of them are put out by the Church of Scientology, so they look kind of polished and they look kind of commercial-like. Uh, there's a couple of them where they actually show an auditing session. And I was watching one where they were trying to show what they did. So for those of you who are curious, here's how it works. They hold the meter, and the woman who's demonstrating it pinched the person. And the, you know, it went all the way up in the meter, showing that that's obviously a stressful thing. And then 
while it was still up there in the stress, she would ask the person over and over, recall me pinching you. And it would go up. Recall me pinching you would go up. Recall me pinching you, and it'd probably go down a little bit. So what they were doing is when it finally went down all the way, they go, okay, that memory, that engram has finally been released. Okay? This video was put out by the Church of Scientology. The funny thing is I, the needle didn't really go down. It just kept staying up there. And, and, I, and she just kept saying it over and over, like, recall when I pinched you, recall when I pinched you. And yeah, it went down a tiny bit, but it never went down. You know? And then she said, there. You know? That's a good example. And I thought, you know, I wouldn't put out that video. Like, that didn't show anything. Okay? There's another video on YouTube where they take apart an e-meter and show you what's inside, all these resistors. There's another video where a guy takes just a regular electric meter that you use to test electricity, holds it, and shows how it works. Okay? It's just like the e-meter is basically measuring resistance in the body. So that's one thing you could look at. Also, something else you can look at YouTube, there's a video of L. Ron Hubbard's son explaining how when he used to take drugs, he sat around with his dad thinking up a lot of the stuff that's now in the religion. So he, there was some, he had some falling out with his dad. I don't know why, but a lot of the stuff that has been made up, he said that he kind of thought of and they were just trying to come up with stuff. Uh, and now it's, of course, codified into the church's theology. He talks about where they got some of it. Okay. Yeah. I know like random places will have these stress tests, which yeah. is the same deal, but how is that related to the ingredients? Maybe you'll be walking along and you'll see somebody will come up and say, hey, would you like to take a stress inventory? So they use the stress inventory as a way to show you that you're really stressed out. You know, there must be something going on and maybe Scientology can help you. A lot of times they'll take a survey and when they show you how off the charts you are on stress, they'll invite you to come to some seminar, invite you to come to the Scientology Center where they can actually talk to you about you know, maybe a way that you can work doing that, okay? Let me just finish this thing about salvation. So if you erase all the engrams, you're reaching into a level of salvation. Now, how do you know that an engram has been released? L. Ron Hubbard said that you would have a, some sort of physical manifestation knowing that the engram had been released. He says it usually is accompanied by yawning, all right? Now think about that. That's a great religion where anytime anybody yawns, you might go, hey, was that an engram going up? Like, like, you're not bored with what I'm saying. It was just like an engram. But it doesn't have to be yawning. He said it could also include tears, sweat, odor, panting, bodily function, flatulence, or vomiting. Can you imagine? That would be awesome. Like, you just, like, you're holding that thing and you fart and somebody goes, hey, that's great. The engram's gone, right? Yeah. Yeah, so yawning is just one example at the mild sense, but it could go all the way. And you are. That's kind of what you're doing. You're letting something out as a physical expression that the engram is gone. Now, there is so much more to their theology I'm not going to go into. Some of you talked about the facial expressions. Who talked about that? Yeah, the tone scale is a tool that they use where they can look at people's facial expressions. And using their facial expressions, kind of figure out the best way to react to that person so that they can communicate clearly and that they can have the most success in the situation. So it doesn't seem too weird. I mean, you're thinking about, like, you know, if, an, if a person looks like this, they're probably angry, you know, and then you would react in this way. But it's very important to them to figure out how to succeed and survive in multiple situations. That's what the tone scale is. They have something called the arc triangle. Because they believe in this thing called the arc triangle, it refers to your affinity, like how you feel, okay? The reality that you accept, all right? That's part of it. And the last one is communication. To Scientologists, clear communication is very important. 
Many Scientology centers will have unabridged dictionaries and they encourage people to use the clearest and best form of communication possible. They believe that as you advance on these scales, you will improve communication. So a lot of people stress communication. It's one of the hallmarks that they really stress. So in fact, they actually bind dictionaries and make them look like scriptural books. They're very highly revered. And they're very critical of people who have poor communication. In fact, they encourage people to get better and better with their communication. That's very important in their arc triangle, that affinity, reality, and communication. And I'm not going to go into all of it because, like I said, to try to summarize all their theology in one night, we can't do that. Let me show you one last piece of what they believe of the, of the way that they see it. There are eight dynamics, and this whole religion really is trying to be to survive at all levels of dynamics. So even in your efforts to get through all these levels and to eventually go through, as you become more clear, as you raise in the levels, you should be able to operate across all of these dynamics. Let me just cite them for you. There's eight of them. First is self, the survival of your individual body and mind. Second, creativity, including the rearing of family and children. Third, survival as a community or a nation. You see it keeps getting like broader and broader. Four, survival of the species itself, all of humans. Fifth, survival of all life form. Six, survival of the physical universe, the mest. Seven, survival of all spiritual things. And finally, eight, survival of all, the allness, the infinite. So you can think of them as concentric circles that get bigger and bigger and bigger. And their idea is the more clear you become, the more spiritually enlightened you become, the more that you should be able to survive at all these different levels and ensure survival for all of the other people around you as you start to enlighten those around you as well. That will lead to that. Cultural thing. Strong belief in democratic principles, individualism, and freedom. That should come as no surprise any religion born in America in the 1950s. Okay? So you can see that there are some hallmarks where no matter what religion you're in, the culture seems to creep in a little bit. Just like in our own Christianity of modern sense. We seem to let the culture seep in all the time and influence our thinking. Yeah? What's their beliefs on outreach? Like, do they believe that you, you need to outreach or you don't have to outreach? Just worry about yourself. Yes. They, not in terms of our outreach, like missionary outreach. Um, most of the people that come to Scientology come because they've read Dianetics or because they encounter one of their self-help groups. All right? And they have a lot of them. They actually help people overcome narcotics addiction. They have a program that works with criminals. They have a program that works with like improving just happiness in your life. And they don't really try to push the religious tenets too much in those things. They're trying just to help you. So there are positive things there. And I think that's something we should point out, that many of us sometimes assume that Christianity is kind of the only game in town when it comes to doing good works through community outreach. There are many, many people out there doing community outreach. Let's just give you an example of what the religious practice is like really quickly. They do have Sunday services. They sing songs. If you walked in, it might not look too unf unfamiliar to you. They got rows and pews. Minister might be wearing like a black robe, maybe a white collar. They'll actually have a message, although they're usually reading right from L. Ron Hubbard's text or showing a video. They do funerals and weddings like any other church. They wed people, they have services where they say to people at funerals, don't worry, he's just moved on to the next life. Just kind of like we do, except they mean it's in a cycle. They have Friday services where they celebrate what's gone on that week. They have naming services where they give you your name and they announce your name, kind of like our child baby dedication. They do similar practices. They have holidays on the founder's birthday and also on the date of the publication of Dianetics. 
And they have their own practices, like I mentioned, that they have these programs that if you're not in auditing and you're not in training, you could be going to some of their things. Like if you've heard of Narconon, that's one of their programs. They also have Criminon, that's one of their programs that they run. You won't know that it's Scientology because it's kind of like, it's not really pushed that hard. It's really just one of the things they do as a public service. Okay. Finally, I think it's fair just to talk about who L. Ron Hubbard was. I've already mentioned him a little bit, but let me give you a little bit of his background. Because I think that whenever you evaluate any kind of religious expression, especially since people spend a lot of time focusing on who is Jesus, you could focus a little bit on who he is. We already talked about kind of his idea about how he wanted to create a religion. If that's true, some people dispute it. Here's a description in Scientology about L. Ron Hubbard. He traveled extensively in Asia as a young man. He studied science and mathematics at George Washington University, graduating from Columbia College. He attended Princeton University and Sequoia University. Crippled and blind at the end of the war, that's World War II, he resumed his studies in philosophy and by his discoveries recovered so fully, remember after being crippled and blind, that he was reclassified for combat duty. It was a matter of medical record that he has been twice pronounced dead and then in 1950 he was given a perfect score on mental and physical fitness reports. When I, when I read the end of that, I thought, you guys know that Dos Equis commercial where they go, he's the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> I thought like the only thing they needed to add to the end of that was, he's the most interesting man in the world, you know? And they could have the bearded guy surfing, right? <laughs> this quote has been torn apart by so many people that have proved that these universities either don't exist, he didn't graduate, he didn't go there, that there is no medical evidence that he was ever crippled or blind or dead or any of those things. So... This is one of the troubling things about Scientology to come back to, is that there seems to be a lot of facts in here. Um, he's been married three times, but the most interesting part was he met his second wife at a Pasadena-based occult ministry that was followers, followers of Aleister Crowley. You guys know who Aleister Crowley is? He's a very, yeah, he's a very famous uh, Satanist, occultist, black magic practicer. So he was attending a group by one of the disciples of Aleister Crowley, that's where he met his second wife, and, and, and that's where he, he was actually working and doing work. And some of the group members wrote about L. Ron Hubbard that he was very good with his practice and rituals in this group. When this was brought out to Scientology later on, that like your founder came from a black magic, occultist, Satanist type background, their response was simply that he was hired by naval intelligence to infiltrate the group to discover who was there and that it was on orders of naval intelligence that he attended to try to figure out how he could somehow get the scientists who were part of the group out of the group. They have discovered that there was one scientist at the group. There's never been any discovery that naval intelligence hired him to infiltrate the occult group. I think that's the most strange part of Scientology, I think, is if I just told you that there's this eternal spiritual soul and it floats around and goes through an endless cycle of reincarnation and it's seeking to get out and by whatever, even auditing or using an e-meter or erasing past memories, you might eventually rise to a level of spirituality where you can escape this, you might be talking about some sort of Buddhism. You might be talking about some sort of, some sort of sect of Hinduism. But it's when they get to the level of detail like the implant station on Mars, the ideas of the exact nature of the evolution of man, it's when they talk about the age of the Thetans being like 80 trillion years or whatever it is and those kinds of details. It's when they talk about like his infiltration into the occult practices that you start to think that's strange because you've brought in facts that didn't even need to be brought into the story somehow I think we would give more of a benefit of the doubt to people if 
if they left it where it was, because then we would think that's an interesting theory. Yeah. If you, if you had someone that came in to a Scientology service and they asked for like some solid evidence, what would they say? Like, what's their argument against that? They would direct you to his writings and basically tell you those are the truthful things. And if you go through auditing, you'll discover over time that that is really true. That as you release these engrams, you will become more enlightened, more as you get towards clear. They'll tell you that you need to do that and, and you can't really see all the evidence until you start doing that. I've had friends that got into Scientology and they were initially they were so excited by it. And they were so taken by it. They thought this auditing was really helping them. But eventually, a lot of people, as they start to see that they're getting no closer to any of these promised things, start to come out of it. But that's where they initially get you plugged in. And a lot of people think like, hey, anything, it sounds like it really helps. And you gotta remember, Dianetics was a huge hit in the 1950s. I mean, this book sold so many copies and there were clubs forming everywhere. It wasn't a religion yet. Dianetics was just a book he wrote and everybody was into it. It was kind of like almost a fad. And then four years later, the Church of Scientology was so officially formed. Was it something like The Secret is now, that whole big thing? Yeah. And then if you just turn The Secret into a, like a religion, that would be very similar to the way it made a huge cultural impact. And it went from there. Yeah, Chip. I had a question on the, the practices. You said that in their services that they sing songs. Are they, like what types of songs are there? He wrote hymns. Yeah, they're, they're kind of like hymns and worship songs. They're actually almost, I want to say they're, they like repeat the ideas of Scientology. Yeah. Where does the name Scientology come from? That's a good question. Um, the name and the engram were actually found in writings that were written like 20 or 30 years earlier. All right. One weird thing about Scientology is the way that they use litigation. They perceive enemies everywhere and they take action. One of the things that Scientology is famous for is they had one of the most elaborate spying networks that was spying on the US government that they've ever seen. It was very elaborate. They actually arrested nine very top officials in the 1970s from Scientology who had infiltrated all sorts of government positions. They in their writings write that all Scientologists should get to the highest levels possible, which has always been a controversial part of Scientology, very strange. Another part of their writings is that Scientologists should use litigation as a tool. Scientology developed a practice that they claim doesn't exist but has been shown in court documents over and over where if you speak out against Scientology in any way, they'll file countless frivolous lawsuits against you and they'll try to bankrupt you. If they can't bankrupt you or you keep fighting them, what they'll eventually do is they'll produce what's the equivalent of a dead file. And that is they'll send private investigators into your life to find every bad thing you've ever done and they publish it on the internet. There are countless declarations on the internet written by people who are former Scientologists that talk about the practice, including somebody who used to be the president of one of the highest Scientology organizations and part of what they call the C organization, a very like elite group of Scientologists where they would have meetings talking about how to destroy people's lives who were opposing the church. Kind of a strange practice. There's a number of videos, a number of specials, a number of news magazines on, the, that have, on YouTube that you can look up that have done a lot of exposés on the Church of Scientology. There are methods, there's interviews with people who used to be, for lack of a better word, the people who were trying to dig up stuff on people. Uh, there were people who are ex-Scientologists who talk about how they've been sued by the church endlessly. The thing that the church seems to hate the most is when you reveal their secrets. And their secrets, of course, is the higher you go up those levels we talked about from pre-clear to clear, and then from clear all the way to those operating levels, the more they tell you about their theology. Let me just give you an example. 
A lot of you are very confused about the whole how did mankind come to earth kind of thing. And the reason that Scientology doesn't talk about it, I looked all over the internet for an explanation. I went to their site and I was looking everywhere and I couldn't find anything. And it turns out that this is a carefully guarded secret. Of course, it's on Wikipedia, so it's not a secret anymore. <laughs> but you had to get to operating Thetan three before they would tell you this, before they told you how it was that these Thetans came to Earth in the first place. And here it is. I'll just read it to you now that it's a secret. You can skip all of the thousands of dollars you have to pay for each level. You guys will be OT3s right after I tell you this. Scientologists believe that 75 million years ago, Xenu was the ruler of a galactic confederacy which consisted of 26 stars and 76 planets, including Earth, which was then known as Tijiak. The planets were overpopulated, each having an average population of 178 billion. I'm going to pause right there because notice one thing about Scientology is, man, they really get into the details. The galactic confederacy civilization was comparable to our own with aliens walking around in clothes that look remarkably like the clothes that they wear this very minute and using cars, trains, and boats looking exactly like those circa 1950, 1960 on Earth. Xena was supposed to be deposed from power, so he devised a plot to eliminate the excess population from his dominions. With the assistance of psychiatrists, so notice that from the beginning in psychiatry there against, he summoned billions of his citizens together under the pretense of income tax inspections, then paralyzed them and froze them in a mixture of alcohol and glycol to capture their souls. The kidnapped... <laughs> The kidnapped populace was loaded into spacecraft for transport to the site of extermination, the planet of Tijiak, which is Earth. The appearance of these spacecrafts would later be subconsciously expressed in the design of Douglas's DC-8, the only difference being the DC-8's jet turbines. When they had reached Tijiak, Earth, the paralyzed citizens were unloaded from the bases of volcanoes around the planet. Hydrogen bombs were then lowered into the volcanoes and detonated simultaneously. Only a few aliens' physical bodies survived. The now disembodied victims sold, which Hubbard's called Thetans or Thetans, were blown into the air by the blast. They were captured by Xenu's forces from an electronic ribbon and sucked into vacuum zones around the world. The hundreds of billions of captured Thetans were taken to a type of cinema. They were then forced to watch 3D super colossal motion picture for 36 days. This implanted what Hubbard termed various misleading data into the memories of the hapless Thetans which has to do with God, the devil, space, opera, etc. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't even know if there's a comma there. God, the devil, space, opera, etc. This included all world religions, which Hubbard specifically attributed to Roman Catholicism and the image of the crucifixion. All of these were attributed to Xenu. The interior decoration of all modern theaters is said by Hubbard to be due to an unconscious recollection of Xenu's implants. The two implant stations cited by Hubbard were said to have been located in Hawaii, and Las Palmas in the Canary Islands. I could go on and on, but the point is, I just want you to keep in mind, you know, if you were writing a science fiction book, I guess all those details would be necessary, you know? It's remarkable the level of detail that they would go into, and remarkable, I think, that it just, I, I don't know. We, we just leave it there. I think it speaks for itself. Um, I want to be fair. Many Scientologists do very moral and good things, like their whole Narconon program, their Criminon program for former criminals. They have a couple other programs that they do in terms of addiction areas, in terms of getting people over things. They have a program called the Bridge to True Happiness or something like that that they bring you through. They have a group called ABLE, which is like the association of, it's, they do all these, like they try to do good programs. But I think we need to recognize as we look at other religions that it's possible to do very good things in this world and come from a totally different worldview than Christianity. But 
unhooked the truth, they're a little different. Okay. By the way, one cool thing about Scientology is unlike our churches, they recognize celebrities. They actually have special churches for the celebrities and where they cater them, kind of like going to valet parking where the rest of us park in the regular world. They have celebrity centers where other people are welcome, but they're really there for John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, and yeah. Um, my question is, how do they synthesize their principle that all men are basically good with attacking other men? There's no synthesis. There's, I mean, you can't put them together. But like, you could ask that question fairly of Christians, right? We could say that we're all love and everything, and then you watch Christians fighting all day long, and you think, how do they synthesize that? I think we'll find in every religion, whatever the theology is, I think we should evaluate what their theology and belief is, and we should understand it. The way people put it into practice will always be polluted, because we're people. Because we see that in Christianity every day. Um, just something I want I to be aware of. Um, you said that L. Ron Hubbard died in 1986. The whole thing with the infiltrating the top levels of the government and all these litigation cases, was that going back before he died? Yeah, in fact, one of the things, there's a theory that L. Ron Hubbard didn't really die. Well, actually, the church said he didn't really die. He left the body to go continue his research at another level. <laughs> that was the church's thing. But uh, the medical examiner, I think, didn't get to autopsy the body, and they claimed that it was cremated. And some people believe that he didn't really die because it was very mysterious how he died because the government was actually about to come in and look into all sorts of tax fraud and other issues. And his wife was actually one of the people that was sent to prison in this whole conspiracy of spying on the government. So they thought that eventually they were going to get to him and find some stuff, but then he died. Sort of a random question, like you addressed it a little bit, but like the location of most Scientologists, like is it primarily based in America or is it like are there other countries and so like which other countries are born? And even in America, is it like different parts of America? It's big in LA in this area. That's one of the reasons I decided to do it because it, when you look at its adherents, it's not that many, but you could very well run into people who believe in Scientology because LA is one of its biggest bases. But it's also big in Australia. I think it's in, in England, well, let's say in Great Britain, in some parts of Great Britain, it's, it's moved into Europe and they say it's like 130 places around the world. I don't know if that's 130 countries. I don't think that's right. But it is primarily big in America among working class to middle class people, and some celebrities. So, yeah. What would you say is the most appealing about The people that I know that have gotten into Scientology found that the most appealing thing was they felt like that the promise was, if you went through the process, that you were going to reach this clear phase, that things in your life were holding you down. So people who are very motivated and believe that they can better themselves, some people, some psychologists refer to this as a self-help or a mind-healing cult. That's the way they've described it. Because the appeal is you can learn to be better in your communication, in your thinking, in your ability to be creative. The more engrams you release, the more creative and powerful you, know, you will become in the way that you think and think more clearly. That's the appeal to a lot of people. And so if you say to somebody, is your life not what you really want it to be? Do you know that this wasn't the way it was supposed to be? Do you know that you got trapped into this whole thing through an endless cycle? If you could free yourself from that cycle, wouldn't you want to do that? And go through this and eventually do it? So that's why people get so excited at the beginning when they're telling them, like, you just release that engram. You just release, and they show you on your chart how you're starting to progress. You start to feel excited about that. And I think over time, it might actually have an effect on your mind. You might think... I am feeling better, I am feeling clearer, I am feeling smarter. It feels good in that way. But then I think after a while when you start paying so much for it, you're not really reaching that, I don't know, I don't know how much it is. And there's more and more courses being, I mean, it just seems like it's an elusive goal. 
I think that's where people drop out. All right. It would do us no good to just talk about Scientology by itself without at least thinking about how you would dialogue with somebody about it. You know, I'm reading a couple books, and I told you some of them are by Christians, and the book goes something like this. L. Ron Hubbard's writings are considered scripture. Of course, we know that's not true because the Bible is scripture. Like, I, I don't think these guys get it. Like, just by the definition, the guy started his own religion. I think he knows he's not Christian. And so you can't take that approach either. You can't sit down with somebody and say, well, we know there can't be a Thetan because Jesus didn't say that. Like, that's not the approach. I don't think L. Ron Hubbard was concerned about Jesus. In fact, he said that Jesus was just another guy who seemed to be a good teacher. Okay? Here's some observations you can make. In Christianity, we, our essence, is a body and a soul. You don't get to divorce them. A lot of people think, wait, what do you mean? Think about it. You're going to be resurrected into your body again. Whereas Scientology, you're just basically the soul or the thetan. The body doesn't matter. Remember, they say, I'm not this body. This body is immaterial to me. That's a, that's a beginning point of your conversation. Like, that's an interesting concept. You guys seem to think it's just this soul. What does that sound like? Anybody know the heresies of the church? What does it sound like when you throw out the body entirely? Gnosticism. Gnosticism. It sounds like a Gnosticism that's kind of crept back into our thinking. I mean, the summary way of thinking of Gnosticism, if you're not familiar with the term, it's like body bad, spirit good. You know, Gnosticism invaded Christianity in the early centuries. Like, uh, you know, like Jesus wasn't, in, he wasn't the incarnation. He wouldn't touch man like that. That's not the essence of him. All those different heresies that came out. And another element of Gnosticism is you always need the secret knowledge. You always need secret knowledge to attain. And that's very much like Scientology. Like, if you discover Scientology, you'll be given the secret knowledge. What's the secret knowledge? That you're in this endless cycle, that you're a thief, that you could get out of this. Once you have that secret knowledge, you can get on the path to free yourself. Sounds very Gnostic. Here's another thing. God is not a man, nor is man God. That's what Christianity basically says. Pretty clear. That's what the Bible says. In Scientology, you have that sense that you can become very God-like. Not God, because God is somewhere out there that's kind of in a Brahmin sense, like, not really sure what, it, what God really is, but it doesn't matter because we are God-like as a theme. We can eventually attain that status if we just break the cycle. Another point of discussion with somebody who comes from Scientology is like, that's a different concept than what we think. God and man are two different things. We don't become God-like. In fact, even in heaven, we are not God-like in any way. We're just us living forever again, back in our bodies. Maybe a resurrected body, but back in the body. Not a cycle of lives. Okay, so resurrection, not reincarnation. And finally, remember that they said, if you look inside yourself, like know yourself and you shall know the truth. Who's the truth in Christianity? What is the truth? Jesus. Yeah, it's Jesus. It's not knowing a certain doctrine or knowing a certain thing. It's knowing Christ. Those are some touch points you can start with with somebody if you want to have a conversation. Notice I didn't start with, hey, the Bible's the word of God, so L. Ron Hubbard can't be true. They, they know that. You know what the differences are. Pick an idea that's interesting and build a bridge that way. Talk about something that they kind of look at and go, it's interesting that you guys think this. You know, we think something different. Start the conversation there. It's not going to start with like, so where's that implant station on Mars? <laughs> you know, have you guys been able to find it? Are you guys feeling good about the, uh, are you guys feeling good about the whole like Mars rover? Maybe it'll find your implant station. You know, I don't, I don't think that's the way to do it. Any last comments? Anything else? Yeah. Um, just kind of to keep ourselves in check, I think, with so we don't get this attitude of kind of scoffing. Just remembering how people outside Christianity look at what we believe and are like, okay, you know, 
Jesus and God being the same person, virgin birth, you know, resurrection, all these things. I mean, they can think we're crazy too. Well, that's why I think when we look at these things, we can't do them justice in one night. But the idea is not for me to summarize everything they believe. It's to give you enough of a working place that you can ask a question. You can start a dialogue with somebody. Okay. Remember that when the, when the Roman Caesars were trying to crush that small sect in Judea, they were told that these people actually kill their master, eat his flesh, and drink his blood. That's what they interpreted the Lord's Supper as. Because we said this actually is the blood and is the body. And we're reenacting a cannibalistic act. That's what they heard. That was what they used as partial justification to kill the Christians. Because they were clearly some sort of occult practice that believed in eating the master's flesh and blood. They were cannibalistic. So I hope that I've at least done a little bit of justice to Scientology. But this should at least give you a little bit of background. That's the whole point. All right? Let's close and uh, let's pray. Lord, there are people in this world that are seeking some sort of truth. And we should rejoice just in that idea that there are people who are seeking things that are outside of themselves. Because it creates an opportunity maybe for us to offer them a chance to look at you, Lord, as the source of life, salvation, meaning, truth. And Lord, we have no idea, the people sit in this room right now, what kind of divine appointments you're going to create for us. Some of us in our comfort in here might think that we're not going to ever run into anybody who has any of these backgrounds or views. But Lord, you know better than that. You know how to orchestrate our every move. In your sovereignty, Lord, you may allow us to run into people in our life who are going to have these views. And I pray that tonight, just something that we said will stick in our minds so that we can have a conversation and a dialogue and begin to reach out. Not in pride, not in insecurity, not in anger, not in a choice to try to prove that we're right, but just in an effort to meet and talk to other people and point them to you. That's our goal. And Lord, I know it's a heavy one. I know it's hard to do this and cram it all in. But Lord, please, now that we've at least done this, take somebody in this room into one of those conversations so that when it happens, they can look back and say that what we did in here mattered to your kingdom, that we didn't spend this night in vain. Pray this in your name. Amen.